Well, that song uh, says it well. Jesus is worth it all. I mean, if you think about, you know, how many songs have been written about what Jesus has done for us, how many songs have been sung over and over and over, you know, once those songs are written about what Jesus has done for us, how many communions have we heard and what we will continue to hear because of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, it is amazing. Uh, thank you, Grant, for sharing today for us from all the way from Sydney for communion. Uh, you know, we, uh, my family really appreciates the Barnard family. Uh, I had the honor of officiating his son's wedding earlier this year. Uh, and, the, and the Barnard family, they're, they're, they're a joyful and faithful family who, who persevered. And they're, they're, they're great pillars uh, in the Sydney church. It's been great to have you guys in town. Uh, and again, thanks for sharing. Great to have uh, Alexandra here as well, uh, your lovely daughter. Um, one announcement we missed, sorry, we probably should have said at the beginning, the, the, mur- the mural there in the back, which is gorgeous and beautiful, uh, thank you, Ricky, for painting this. Um, well, I don't think it was Ricky, but uh, it's still wet a little bit. And so if we could please be vigilant parents with our children and just in general as a fellowship on the exit today to stay off of the lovely paint there so that can remain as beautiful as it is. Uh, we also have midweek coming up uh, this, uh, this week, and... Um, uh, and, and, and subsequently, uh, following that will be family group leaders meeting, not, not this Saturday, but a week from Saturday on the 13th of July. Uh, and we also have a leadership group and deacons meeting today. And we really want to start a dialogue uh, as a church uh, with our, our leadership and the way it's structured and just with the whole church membership. We're really just trying to start a dialogue in July that I believe will continue probably into August and might even go into September. Um, really a, a conversation, a healthy dialogue for every one of us who are members of this great church uh, about how we can be our best for God and for each other. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about what it really means to be a member of the church. And I know not everyone can always make it to midweeks, but I really want to encourage you, if you can make it to midweeks, to make it to midweeks uh, from here on out, but especially in the next coming months because we're going to be talking about uh, some of the challenges and issues and really having a conversation there together as a church. Um, uh, so if you can't make it to the midweeks, please find out what we talked about. Please talk to your family group leader. Uh, please talk to one of the deacons, one of the uh, members of the leadership group, uh, and so on and so forth. But I'm excited about how God's going to work through that. Uh, and I look forward to seeing how God will bless our unity in the uh, weeks and months to come. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 13, you can turn there. We are, we are now halfway through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, is that not exciting? Amen. Maybe by, maybe, maybe by New Year's, you know, maybe, but probably not. Because uh, there's just so much to learn from Jesus. There's just so much to learn uh, from the glorious Gospel of Luke. Uh, we looked at Luke 13, you may or may not remember, a while back. We had a campaign on renewal. And we looked at Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, where Jesus uh, calls us to repent or perish. And then he gives us a parable to tell us why. You know, that God wants to, He wants to, to work in our lives, He wants to bear fruit through us, but we must choose Him, and repentance is a big part of that. And so we're going to skip that section this morning and move on in Luke 13, picking it up now in verse 10. In Luke 13, verse 10, it says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Verse 17, when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then in verse 18, Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, in verse 20, he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds, or 27 kilograms, depending on which part of the world you're from, of flour until it worked all through the dough. The title of my sermon this morning, as we stroll on into the afternoon, is Jesus the Question Asker. Jesus the Question Asker. If you dig into the Gospels, you realize that Jesus asked a lot of questions. Yeah. A little trivia question. Today you've got to put on your, your thinking hats. So we're going to ask you a lot of questions. Because okay. we're going to talk about Jesus the Question Asker. But a trivia question for you is, how many questions in the Gospels did Jesus ask? Uh-oh. Some of you, I may have shared this, so I may have given you the answer. Anybody know? Anybody have a guess? 350. That's very close. I haven't counted them, but someone did. Just to let you know, don't be impressed. It's three. He has 307 questions in the Gospels. Jesus himself. He himself was, was questioned 183 times uh, by mostly his critics, right? Sometimes his disciples. He only, he only responded directly to three of those questions and answered them. So it's quite, it's quite interesting. And it was actually a very common form of Jewish thinking to ask questions. And so there, there's an old Jewish joke, you know, why does a Jew always answer a question with a question? And the answer, of course, is, well, why, why shouldn't a Jew always answer a question with a question? And so some of what is going on in the Gospels is, is God is not, he, he's not a God who, who created mindless beings. He's a God who created beings with, with a mind that is capable of, of thinking and understanding and comprehending what he expects of us. And here in Luke uh, 13, verses 10 to 13, Jesus is at the synagogue. It doesn't say where he is, but he's at a synagogue. This is the last time uh, that Luke will note Jesus visits the synagogue. This is the last time. Um, because he's, of course, getting more and more opposed by the Jewish religious leaders in that, in that day. And here, as he's in the synagogue for the last time, as Luke records it, he performs a wonderful miracle, right? A woman who is bound by a spirit, it says, for 18 years. Later on, it says she was bound by Satan himself. So whatever she was going through, spiritually, physically, it was terrible. It was terrible. Jesus, he heals her. But because it's on the Sabbath day, the synagogue ruler responds, it says, or leader in verse 14. But he speaks to the people. There are six days for work in verse 14, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And Jesus then responds uh, in verse 17 with a question. Right? With a question. You know, should not this woman be set free since she suffered for 18 long years? And so all this really should make us think a bit more. You know, why does Jesus, you know, ask questions? You know, we often want to approach Jesus the way we want to approach Jesus. But Jesus, if you approach Him, He's going to ask you questions. He is Jesus, the question asker. Uh, Author Richard Rohr is thinking about this idea of Jesus, the question asker. And he says, in general... 
we can see that Jesus' style is almost exactly the opposite of modern tele-evangelism or even the mainline church approach of inspiring advice and workable solutions for daily living. Jesus is too much the Jewish prophet to merely stabilize the status quo with platitudes, he says. And so why have we paid so little attention to Jesus, the question asker? It's a good thing to think about in our kind of Western mindset today. And here is Richard Rohr, that same author's response to that question. He says, answers give us more of a feeling of success and closure. Easy answers instead of hard questions allow us to try to change others instead of allowing God to change us. And so let's allow God to change us today a bit more uh, through Jesus' questions and Luke's account here. And and we'll just explore these two questions uh, that Jesus asks. The first question he asks is, should not this woman be set free? Right? In response to the uh, synagogue leader's critique, Jesus asked a question about what they do with their ox and donkey in verse 15 on the Sabbath, which is, of course, untied and water it. And then in verse 16, he asked this question, Should not this one be set free after suffering for 18 years? If you go back in our study of the Gospel of Luke, you recall the first thing Jesus publicly said, according to Luke, was at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. We read it a while back. He's there and he's been given the scroll of Isaiah by the attendant to read, which was part of the, of the normal ceremony. And Jesus, he, he reads the section in Isaiah there where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He quotes Isaiah 61 and he sits down and everyone's, everyone's focused on him. It's one of those moments... And then what does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. A little preview of what was to come, right? Yeah. And here in Luke 13, he's doing exactly what he said he would do. Uh, which is one of the most amazing things about Jesus. Why do people not believe in a man who says he's going to do miraculous things and then does them over and over and over? Well, that's, that's a whole other story when it comes to just having faith in Jesus. That's what I want to talk about this morning. That's just awesome. I just love just throwing out little things about Jesus. It just makes it so awesome. But, but Jesus here, you know, he asks some, some, some questions in response to a criticism toward him. And so I think it begs some good questions of us. You know, well, what does it mean today to be set free by Jesus? We don't have him physically walking around. I uh, wish we did, uh, but that's not God's plan at this point uh, in His will. Uh, he's gone back to heaven to be with God. Uh, but we know uh, a lot of what Jesus points to in the Gospels, like John 8, for example, is a whole chapter where He points to, He's here to offer this freedom, which He referred to in Luke 4, the Scripture uh, we're looking at here. He, he refers to this, this freedom from sin, really, in John 8, uh, that He's trying to, trying to uh, grant us. And, and oftentimes the Jews equated physical suffering. With, with spiritual slavery and sin. And so, even speaking to the Jewish culture, he's trying to address this idea of he's here to free them, really, ultimately. And biblically, we know uh, it's, it, it, it could be a physical miracle, and Jesus can still do miracles today. There's no doubt about that. But, but deeper than that, and more, and more importantly, spiritually, he's, when he says he's coming to set us free, he's talking about you know our, our eternal life. He's talking about the freedom from sin in this life uh, and the next. Um, uh, and, and in verse 16 in the text, you know, he... He says Satan has bound this woman. Uh, and it's referring, I believe, to her spiritual state as much as her, as her physical healing. Um, and so it brings us, you know, so that hopefully answers our first question. What does it mean to be free today? Well, I believe it's to be set free from sin. 
uh, through Jesus more than anything else. And the second Bible question is, why does Jesus not set all free? Why did He not heal everyone in His day? Right? Why, why does He still not always set people free today? Uh, well, that's much more uh, about us and not really about Him. Uh, and you can see some, some freedom inhibitors, if you will, uh, in this passage that, that keep us today and keep others from being set free spiritually uh, by Jesus. Um, and so we'll just go through this here uh, and, and have, a, have a think about this in our own lives. The first is just cowardice. In verse 14, we see cowardice keeps people from being set free by Jesus. The synagogue ruler, he's indignant, it says. And here's Jesus, and he talks to the crowd about Jesus, criticizing what Jesus has just done. And so there's this cowardice that we see here in the synagogue leader. He's critical of God, but he doesn't actually address the one with whom he is critical. And I think about that, you know, with the truth of Jesus today. Is it really that different? Are people really courageous today with the truth of Jesus? Uh, I share my faith a lot in the city of Birmingham, uh, you know, and, and it never ceases to amaze me. I offer it freely, I offer it graciously, I offer it logically, but it's amazing to me how many people are not even willing to even consider just a few of His words for a moment of their life. No, I'm too busy. No, I don't want to go there. No, it's irrelevant. And, and a lot of that to me is it's, it's masked and, 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 and wisdom and, oh, that's archaic. But really to me, a lot of it is just covering up our cowardice. We're afraid of the truth. We don't want to face ourselves. And the synagogue leader here, I think he displays that quite well. You know, with Jesus' truth, you, you can run and hide, but eventually you'll have to face it, according to the Bible. C.S. Lewis, uh, speaking of critics of God, who say, well, I don't believe in God because He hasn't fully revealed Himself. If He would just fully reveal Himself, I would believe in Him. He's, he's addressing that kind of a critique in his book, <coughs> Mere Christianity. Uh, and, and Lewis says, well, hey, if He fully revealed Himself, you, you wouldn't have a choice. Because if you fully saw God clearly for who He was, you wouldn't be able to make a choice, but He came in disguise... In the incarnate Christ, in the flesh, so you so you could make a choice. But then he concludes, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when He does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you are on His side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream. When something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying... You choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up, Lewis says. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, he concludes, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so a good question, you know, on this first idea here is what truth do you need to seek from Jesus today? Well, what truth do you need to seek from Jesus today in your life? The second freedom inhibitor here is hypocrisy. In verse 15, after this uh, indirect criticism, in verse 15, Jesus, he calls out, uh, I think, the culture of the synagogue at that point, you hypocrites. Because it's plural, not singular. So he's not just talking to the synagogue leader, right? 
And he asks a question. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then, then why should we not heal this woman who's been bound, right, for 18 years? Uh, he goes on to say. They were hypocritical in that they're looking true to the Sabbath in one setting at the synagogue where everyone follows the rules that they had, they had accustomed to in that time. The Bible says no work on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, but, but the Jews of Jesus' day had defined that to a bunch of man-made rules about what that did or did not mean to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus calls them out on that because at home, they don't follow that rule. But at the synagogue, uh, you know, they do. And so that's the hypocrisy uh, that he speaks of. He refers to the same kind of hypocrisy in Matthew 6 Verse 5, when he says the hypocrites pray to be seen by others. He refers to the same kind of hypocrisy in Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. Hypocrites see others sin greater than their own. And so it's kind of this idea of you know, this public hypocrisy. Uh, and so uh, you know, it's easy to come and play the part. It's easy to walk through these doors and put on a happy face and act like everything's okay. And that's a way I think we can be sometimes hypocritical as Christians. And so where are you hypocritical or in danger of being hypocritical is another great question uh, for us to ask ourselves this morning in light of this passage. And the third and final freedom inhibitor here uh, is that of pride. It's simply that of pride. And this might be the most dangerous. Verse 17, it says, after Jesus questions them, his opponents were humiliated. And amen, they could have been convicted, which I think is probably what God was looking for at that point. But it says it said they were humiliated. Why, why do we get humiliated? Well, it's because we, we don't want to be wrong. And we're embarrassed. And that's what happened here. And it's even more so that way our pride comes out in public moments where our pride is indeed exposed. And so pride, pride can keep us from, from, from finding the freedom that, that Christ wants to offer. It's not just hypocrisy uh, and cowardice. And pride is one of those sins that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you look at the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, you know, what was the first sin uh, that, that allowed the world to become fallen that, that Adam and Eve chose? Well, well, it says Eve saw the fruit on the forbidden tree and it looked good. And then she, she chose to eat alongside with her husband. But before that, it says that the, the serpent had a conversation with them. Did God really say, you know, is it really going to be a bad thing? And so what, what led to the lust and the disobedience, which are common sins among us too, is, was the pride. That's what, that's what fed, right, the lust uh, and the disobedience uh, in Genesis 3. I believe it was pride, the first sin, uh, that led to the fall. You know, how is pride keeping you or I from seeking more of Jesus' help in our lives is another great question. Another great question uh, for uh, to us to ask ourselves today because pride can keep us from the humility required to face our own shortcomings and sins and truly turn to Jesus. Pride is what often inhibits us uh, from really finding that freedom as Christians that Jesus wants to have us to have even more. And pride is often what keeps people who aren't Christians from finding that freedom in Christ and becoming uh, a follower of Him. And what's quite interesting here as we conclude this first point is the dangerous way these sins, cowardice, hypocrisy, and pride, hide well in religious systems. They hide very well, very well in religious systems. The synagogue uh, was a religious system and they had their Sabbath rules and all these sins are hiding in there and then Jesus comes in and He exposes it. Jesus comes in and He calls it for what it is. You know, religious systems are not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily even bad. They can sometimes do great good. But we all know if we've been around our fellowship for a little while, the more we rely on the religious system or the religious structure the more in danger we are of becoming these kind of people. And the more in danger we are of, of losing our grasp, not on, not on being a great church, 
But I'm having a great Savior. I'm walking with Jesus and finding the freedom more and more and more that He wants us to have. You know, Jesus calls out uh, these religious systems which create these religious fences. You know, stop here and you're righteous. Go there and you're not. You know, these, these boundary lines that religious systems create. He calls us out over and over because Jesus' life and words, they're the fence. Now, not, our, not our beliefs and our ideas and our methods and our practices. And so, so, so Jesus, he, he, he questions us, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And some closing questions here to consider in light of this passage. Are we looking to be church people or Christ people? Are we looking for more religion or a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Do we want churchianity or Christianity? Those are two completely different things. Uh, but they can often look very much like they are the same. And so these questions, I think, they challenge us that Jesus asks here uh, to really dig deep and really find the freedom that he, he wants to give us, that He wants us to enjoy. And amen. I appreciate people in the church who are enjoying that freedom, who are living out that great life that Jesus has called them to, but we know we want everyone, everyone, right, uh, to enjoy that freedom. And this woman here uh, who gets healed, she's a great example of, of, of you know, the way to find and the way to maintain uh, the freedom that Christ wants to give us in life against sin. She does three things here very simply that we all can do no matter where we're at or continue to do. In verse 10, it says Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues and, and the woman was there. She was likely probably looked down upon. She was probably not even likely someone who would have been welcomed in that synagogue because of her ailment. Yet she's there listening to the Word of God. Nothing's going to stop her. You can imagine back then without you know, uh, you know, uh, devices and assistance. You know, if someone was really disabled, it would be very challenging even to get to me. But she's there. She wants to hear the Word of God. Amen. Yeah. So, so we've got we to learn. We've we got to learn from God's Word. We've got to go after God's Word. We've got to not let things stop us from seeking God, God's Word. We've got we to listen. We've got to listen to it. Um, second thing here is she leaned. In verse 12, it says Jesus called her forward. You know, we got we got to, we got to move at some point. We we can we can learn a lot. We can listen, you know, a lot to the word, and we try to as a church always have biblical sermons. But but then what do we do with that? We're going to try to hand out a you know a, a sheet you know at, at the end of every month, um, which probably should have been today. But uh, you know about the previous month's sermons, Matt will get that out probably next week. And uh, Amen, Matt. Write that down. And because uh, we're putting together these sermons, but what are we doing with it? And using that in our family groups and using that as a church uh, will be a way uh, for us to lean into what Jesus is saying and actually make decisions about where He's calling us to. And the last thing she did is she leapt. In verse 13 it says, Immediately she straightened up and praised God. She praised God. You know, she worshipped God. You know, our worship or lack thereof shows how in touch we are with how much God has blessed us. It shouldn't take the song leaders... Brothers and sisters, it's it's 10.07. Come to your seats. It's time to worship God. But let's be honest, that's often what it takes, even on Sunday morning. No, it should be, praise God, He's working in my life. Praise God, He's forgiven me of my sins. What time is worship starting? I'll be there ready to sing. Amen. That that should be the heart of someone. We should be leaping for joy. We should should have to be holding people back from the excitement. But oftentimes, we're we're not, you know, if we're not leaping, we're not getting what Jesus has done for us. And she's all these things. She listened, she leaned, and she left. And we can be these people too. And then we can enjoy more and more the freedom that Christ offers us in our lives. Should this woman not be set free? And should we not be set free too? And the other point here this morning, you know, should this woman not be set free? And what is the kingdom of God like? 
A very good question. What is the kingdom of God like? You know, Jesus here in verse 18, that's what He asks, right? I didn't have to make up the point. It's already in the passage. What is the kingdom of God like? And again in verse 20, He says, And what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Which begs another question. What is the kingdom of God? We use that word religiously or not, you know, all the kingdom, of, all the kingdom, all, all the kingdom of God. Uh, in Luke's gospel, it's mostly referred to as the kingdom of God. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, it's mostly referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is where God, you know, reigns and resides. It's not really a, a location. It's kind of everything, if you will. And so, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So we can say kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But based on Jesus' question, we'll say kingdom of God. Here's another trivia question for the trivia lovers amongst you. I don't know if you have this at the, at the, at the pub quiz or not. But uh, when was the first time in the Bible that the idea or language of a kingdom of God occurred? What was the first time in the Bible the, the language, the idea of, of a kingdom Daniel. of God occurred? Where, where was it? Daniel, Joshua. Daniel, Joshua. It's earlier. It's earlier. Genesis 12, it's earlier. It's actually Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. Man, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that, creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1.26. It doesn't say, you know, let me create humanity to manage the earth. It says to rule over. To rule over the earth. That's... That's royal language there That's in the right. Hebrew. Yeah. So right away in God's creation, there's this idea that there was going to be some kind of some kind of reign, some kind of rule, and we of course reflect God. And so there you go. There's a beginning uh, of the story there of the kingdom of God. And we know in chapter three, as we just referenced that earlier, the humans rebel against that idea. They try to co-rule with God, and that never works too well. And and the fall occurs, right? And we're still living under that under that curse today. And praise praise God that He sent Jesus to fix that. And so now an alternate kingdom, if you will. This world, the Bible calls it. Jesus will call it this age, uh, you know, in the Gospels. Now that, that is, is, is struggling and striving against uh, this kingdom of God. And so the Bible story then reveals what God is doing to restore His kingdom in this world. He will eventually choose a man, Abraham, right? And Abraham of Isaac. Isaac will then have Jacob. And Jacob will have 12 sons. And those eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And as they kind of incubate in Egypt and grow, God then brings them out through Moses, right? Uh, and, and, and that's again the first time in the Bible where, where God is referred to as a king. As a king himself. It's actually uh, in Exodus 15, verse 18. The, the Israelites are being delivered through the Red Sea. You know, the Red Sea parts, they go through. The water goes over the Egyptians and they're, you know, they're washed away. And so Moses and the Israelites are on the other side of the water celebrating and they bust out in song. You know, it's a, the Bible's a musical sometimes, right? And, and they start singing, right? And, and, and the last part of their song in Exodus 15 verse 18 is the Lord reigns forever and ever. You know, boo-boo, Pharaoh, you know, it's, you know, it, you know the, Lord is, the Lord is the ruler, not you, Pharaoh. You know, it's kind of that last, you know, that last statement, if you will. And so they go on in the desert. At Mount Sinai, you know, they get the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, through Moses. Uh, and they're taught how to live with God as their king. God's intent was that Israel would be a theocracy, in which God Himself would be their king. As time wears on and their faith diminishes, they, they ask for a physical king, 
right? Like all the other nations. And so, you know, Deuteronomy gives them the rules. So, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. But, but here are the rules. You know, God's gonna He's gonna rule that king because He is the ultimate king. And and of course, they'll they'll get it right on the second try for a little while with David. The first king saw it doesn't go so well, and and there's a lot of bad kings after that. Division, exile. Uh, repentance and kind of a, a cycle of that for a while. And the prophets then start to peak up, speak up and they start to point to the future. Prophets like Isaiah. And they say, from David's line, a true and perfect king would come. Isaiah 52, verses 7-10 through 10 makes, that, makes that quite clear. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they will lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then you enter into the New Testament. You know, the first words that Matthew Records Jesus himself saying publicly are a little different than what Luke records. They repent in Matthew 4 verse 17. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus, the Jews have been waiting. They've been long and they understand that they get it biblically. But it's not quite come yet. And the prophets have pointed to it. Now Jesus, it's arrived. Here I am. And then he'll start to call people. Some fishermen at first, right? You know, who, who lay down their little kingdoms. To follow the king, right? Which is still the call today as Christians. Uh, and so Jesus here in Luke 13, he's now teaching them about this kingdom. He does it quite a bit all throughout the Gospels. The last time he enters Jerusalem, in Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5, he enters on the colt of a donkey. He enters like a king entering a city in times of peace. And it's according to prophecy. And Zechariah 9, verse 9, he's fulfilling that prophecy. And they say, Hosanna! And they put down the palm branches and they receive Jesus as he would receive the king. As it enters in Jerusalem for the last time, right? Unfortunately, a few days later, the same people are shouting, Crucify Him! He, he's, he, he willingly submits to a man-made death because He wanted to be our Savior and Lord. He dies. He resurrects. Praise God on the third day. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, He's meeting with, with, with the church, it says, for about a 40-day period. And then He ascends back to heaven. Hope you guys are still with me here. This is some teaching I told you to put on your brain today. And, and it says he met for 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And then they say, Lord, later on in Acts 1, 3 through 9, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still kingdom talk. He says, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and, all, and to the ends of the earth. And we know the book of Acts, what emerges is not a, is not a government, right? A, a physical government kicking out the Romans and, and putting Israel back as a prominent nation. No, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual kingdom that the church becomes where, where all nations, as we just read in Isaiah 61, where all nations can gather, which we still get to celebrate as Christians today and a welcome, you know, with the diversity in the room. And the church goes on to grow. And, and, it, and it becomes more and more as it grows and as it changes and is transformed to Jesus, the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's uh, another uh, synonym for the kingdom of God. It's today the church, the body of Christ. And Jesus, you know, he, he, he's going to come back. In Revelation 19, it says he will come back. The king will return. And if you thought the last Lord of the Rings trilogy was good, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? He's going to come back. 
And he's going to be on a white horse. Not a donkey. No. Which is what a king rode into war. His eyes would be like blazing fire. We don't have time to get into the vision. Read it later. Write it down. But it says, in verse, uh, toward the end of that passage, it says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So from Genesis to Revelation, we've just walked through it. It's really all about the kingdom of God. And so the reality is, you know, where is that kingdom today? What, what does that kingdom look like? Uh, you know, we, got, we need to take this wonderful idea and make it practical. And that's where we're closing our time in here. As Jesus says, well, you can understand what the kingdom of God is like. It's not beyond you. You can, you can enter into it. You know, it's funny we sing building up the kingdom. Well, we don't really build it. God builds it. Hey, Amen. It's a good kid's kingdom song. But I care about the theology there sometimes. But no, we, we enter into it. We seek it. it it's already here. God's already, he's already done it. He's already doing it. And in Revelation 19 it says, then he'll, he'll wrap it on up and it's going to be awesome if you're on the right side. But uh, the kingdom of God, he says, is two things practically as we close out here. So we can be kingdom people, not church goers, not religious neighbors, but kingdom people. Kingdom people. Because that's what Christians are. That's what God has made us. That, 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 that's our birthright, spiritually speaking. We're kingdom people. Well, he says, first, the kingdom of God is like a tree. Here in verse 19, the kingdom of God is simply like a tree. The mustard seed here is what's planted, but it says it turns into a tree where all the birds of the air can perch. Uh, culturally, in this time, trees were a regular symbol for, for great empires. Um, and, and so the, the subject nations who found shelter and refuge and protection were typified as birds, oftentimes in, in, in cultural analogies from this day. Ezekiel has this image uh, it, it itself, and it's writing several times. And so Jesus is not really focused on the small mustard seed, but the end, the end product, this giant tree, right, uh, which represents this great nation in which all people uh, can find refuge. And, and, and birds in uh, and, and Palestine still to this day, they love mustard seeds. They're quite tasty. We like it, you know, in different forms, right? And so, and so it's this idea of the sustenance and the, and the, the way the, the tree will provide. And so it's a wonderful picture of what the kingdom of God can do, how powerful it is, how awesome it is, how, how much it can provide, and how it can provide for all. All the birds of the air can can find shelter, can find protection on this tree, which Jesus refers to as the kingdom uh, of God. You know, the kingdom is powerful, not because of money or influence or connections or personality, but simply because of the power of love. Because if you think about it, what what really is, what can we feed the city of Birmingham with as a church? What do we really have to offer? We we have to offer the the greatest thing in the world, which is the love of God. And and, and people who get the love of God, they can share that love with others. And that's why the kingdom of God, it's a a wide place. It's a far-reaching place. It's a place where everyone is welcome. And I can't think of many cities that I've been to more that, that need that kind of place. Then Birmingham, I was showing the Barnards around that, you know, the city yesterday, proud of our city, showing them around, you know, and, uh, and it's just so diverse. It's just such a diverse place, and it's just it's such a lovely thing to me, because I believe the kingdom of God can meet all the needs of that diversity. The kingdom of God can speak a language that everyone speaks, because it's a language of love. It's a language of love, it's a language of grace. You know, there's an article uh, on MSN.com at the end of May. It says, Britain's sense of community spirit is in decline, according to new research. More than half of Brits barely say a word to their neighbors. And 68% describe them as strangers. 
Two-thirds admit days can pass without them even seeing others living on the same street. While 73% don't even know what their names are. These are people who you live right beside, statistically. Half of adults say they do not feel part of a good neighborly community. And 9 and 10 admit they never volunteer to help out with local charities and groups. And it goes on to say, so the government is taking action, you know, which, uh, yeah. amen, that's one kingdom. And I'm not trying to knock the UK government, but, but don't we have something better already in the kingdom of God to break these patterns of Britain? And isn't that what we can offer our neighbors? Isn't that what we can offer this city? And isn't that how we can change our neighborhoods and change this city? Because the kingdom of God is like a tree. And so let's understand if we're a Christian what we're a part of. Let's understand that, that it has power to change our lives. It has power to change our neighborhood. It has, it has power to, great power to include all, all the birds of Birmingham uh, into its great tree. So the kingdom of God is like a tree. And, and second, finally here, the kingdom of God is like yeast. Again, we, I, I, I marveled at this the other, the other, a few weeks ago. Jesus takes these ordinary, everyday things and blows our minds. And this is even cooler because this is something microscopic. You can't even see it. Yeast is a, is a single-celled microscopic organism. It consumes sugar and carbohydrates. And as it consumes that sugar, there's a chemical reaction that occurs. And it releases alcohol and carbon dioxide. And that gives bread, when they put yeast in it, some of that flavor that we like. And then it gives it the rising effect, right, as well. It makes it fluffy. Uh, so there's a little, bit of, a little bit of cooking science there for you. And uh, that's free. And... Uh, and, and one of the ways that they would do it back then, because they didn't have like yeast, yeast over at you know Sainsbury's, you know, you know, it was they would they would find active yeast, and I, I don't know how they figured that out, but they did, and and they would keep a little piece of that active yeast from that dough, bake the rest of it, and they would keep that, and they would pass it on into the next batch of dough, and that's how they would keep the yeast going. And I think some people probably still cook like that. Anybody here cook like that today? You know, everyone's buying bread at the store. Amen. But uh, but that, that's how the yeast, you know, that's how the yeast kept kept spreading. But the yeast, you know, once you put it, Jesus says you put it a little bit of it, so it'd be a little piece. And he says sixty pounds or twenty seven kilograms, and it and it spreads through. It spreads through the whole batch. He says of dough. He says that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's contagious like the flu. Amen. My family's recovering uh, from about of that recently. Uh, you know, Jesus says this is how the kingdom of God works. It's exciting to think about. You know, a little can go a long way in the kingdom of God. Your little, my little, you know, if, we, if it's really done in the kingdom of God, it can do something huge. Yeah. It can do something something amazing. You know, you know. If I think about my salvation. A guy was a, a little bit patient with me and a little bit faithful with me. And, and, and it helped me find the salvation of my soul. And he probably didn't think, even think much of it at the time in 1995. But I, I needed a lot of it. But he just gave me a little bit of it. And that's all I needed to get here. Uh, and find the gospel and be saved. And it's true, true, true for you every day. True for me every day. Those little things in the name of the kingdom of God, they can make a huge difference. A little can go a long way, according to this parallel. God is always working, even though we cannot see it. You can't see the yeast, but it's, it's working through the dough. You know, a lot of times we want to see God working. God, where are you? Why not this? Why not that? But, but He is working. We just can't see it sometimes. And the other thing I think that's clear here is God's power is, is outside but works within. It comes from the outside of us. It's not about us, but God, it works within. And, and, and if you think about that as Christians, that's the Holy Spirit. It, it comes from God, but He puts it inside of us. You know, like that yeast working through the whole batch of dough. You know, we sing, you know, Let the Spirit of the dough <laughs> Martin's like, it's about to say, oh, oh, oh. You know, Martin really gets it going. And, uh, and I love that part. I love that part. 
believe it. You know, and, 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 and what are we receiving it? And how exciting is that? That the Spirit of God Himself, the Spirit of the, of the Kingdom of God, is working inside of each one of us as Christians. You know, so what 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 can we not conquer? What can we not get through? What can we not overcome? What life can we not have? What what resources can we not muster up through the Holy Spirit, which works through the whole batch of dough? You know, do we get what it means to be a part of God's kingdom? You know, we need to, we need to take great pride in being a part of God's kingdom. We need to, we need to do do everything we can to 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 seek it, to enter into it, uh, to rejoice in it, to celebrate it, and to tell everyone we can about the kingdom of God. You know, may Jesus' kingdom reign in our lives and hearts all the more as we consider, you know, Jesus' question, which he answers here, what is the kingdom of God like? It is like a tree, strength, sustenance through love. It is like he's small, hidden, but once added into us, it spreads and grows and allows us and others to rise. And so, you know, as we keep singing that song, let's keep living it out. Amen. And we should sing it like Martin sings it. We should, we should get what it means for the Spirit of the Lord to rise among us. You know, amen. If you're busy with us today, you know, what question, what question is Jesus asking you right now? Don't focus on me. Don't focus on our church service. Don't focus on the, the football match later. What is Jesus saying to you if you're busy with us today? What, 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 what is He trying to say to you right now as you encounter Him in the Gospels? So and I would encourage you to think about that and talk, and talk to us as a church and let us know what you think He's saying to you so we can help you really get the questions answered that He wants to answer in your life. Uh, if, you, if you're not a Christian, and if you are, that we can really ask more questions together. Amen? And, and church, you know, let us be stirred, moved, transformed by Jesus, the question asker today. You know, finding more freedom from sin in Him and allowing God's kingdom to reign more and more in our lives and in this church. And the Birmingham Church of Christ said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.